Our planet is unique in the solar system in being largely covered by water. And the underwater world, far from being the eerie silent place we've been led to believe, in fact abounds with noise. The sounds and vocalizations of life forms within the ocean itself are perhaps the most fascinating of all, but other sources such as man-made noise, geophysical and atmospheric effects also contribute to the overall sound chorus. We have become increasingly aware of noise underwater in recent years, mainly because we've become better at listening to it, and better at recording it using specially designed underwater microphones called hydrophones. All engines, all pumps, all refrigerators, anything that makes noise in the ship is, is turned off. And we try and have vessels that uh, ride in, in the seaway without, uh, without splash. And we put out hydrophones. Usually we use four hydrophones, one off the bow, one off the stern, one floated to windward. The wind blows the vessel, and so you put a buoy out with the hydrophone and it'll, it'll hang to windward of your vessel. And then we put one deep, so we have four hydrophones in a three-dimensional array. And that's our usual listening, listening arrangement. Well, the work that we have done in the Antarctic has taken the form of recordings made using sauna buoys, which is a, basically a hydrophone which you throw over the side of a ship, which transmit the signal by radio to the boat. So someone on board the boat would simply be recording the radio signals coming in. Um, these kind of recordings uh, are somewhat difficult to get and so another platform that we can use is the ice edge itself to sit on the ice edge as for instance killer whales pass by and record their sounds their feeding activities and what whatnot uh, and that's been our most successful technique for obtaining recordings of Antarctic animals Killer whales are also often seen in small groups off the west coast of Ireland in late summer. Spotting them is not easy, listening to them is even harder, but we have learned to eavesdrop on the underwater world with hydrophones. Now it's a problem that really had to wait until the age of modern electronics to be solved. However, it had been known since the time of Aristotle in 400 BC that dolphins and porpoises make noise underwater. One of the first early references to man-made sound underwater comes from the notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci, who described how distant ships could be heard by placing a long hollow tube in the water and listening with your ear at the open end. Modern hydrophones allow us to listen to the underwater world in many different situations and locations, from the deepest ocean trenches to shallow coastal waters and inland freshwaters and even under polar ice. Jim Stewart, diving officer at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, trains scientists and divers intending to work in the Antarctic. The sounds that are used for two purposes, first of all, because they're there and they're neat sounds, and secondly, when I train people to work underwater, I want them to be physically aware of the sounds that they hear. There are three marine mammals that make their living eating other warm-blooded animals. You have the polar bear in the north, the killer whale worldwide, and the leopard seal takes the place of the polar bear in the Antarctic. Uh, he is an animal that reaches a length of about nine feet. He has a skull that's twice the size of any other seal. He has no chewing teeth, they're all tearing teeth. And he'll take a 70-pound emperor penguin and shake him about twice and shake him out of his skin. Now, we have had problems uh, in the Palmer Peninsula area with leopard seals physically harassing our divers 
and going through the same kinds of attack programming that many sharks do. The shaking of the head, the biting in the water. Uh, so it's nice to know what's around and by listening to these sounds you can in fact tell who's around in the vicinity. about the Antarctic, especially during the winter and early spring months, is the clarity of the water. That I, you can see 800 feet. There is not enough sunlight to support a plankton bloom, and there's no surge or very little current to stir up any sediment on the bottom. So it's essentially like looking into distilled water. Many of the animals are animals that are four, five, six hundred feet away from us, and yet when we were watching these on Pan and Telt television, uh, we were seeing them at the same time we were creating the noises. So the Waddell seal puts out this, this sound that uh, drops in frequency. Most of us feel that it is, in fact, a, a navigational sonar, although we don't know how the heck he does it. But we're sure that that's what had happened, because otherwise, how does he find the hole in the dark of winter through which he goes back? you'll hear the rasping sound. These seals never come out from under the ice all winter long. They simply rasp a hole through a little lead, uh, you know, a tidal crack in the ice, and they keep that open, and they have a very small volcano-looking hole, and the only thing that you ever see of that seal is the end of his nose all winter. Why should he come out when it's 100 below, when in fact it's 28, 28 and a half degrees Fahrenheit in the water? The other seals that you hear, the Ross seal, sounds like something you'd expect to hear on a radio telescope. It's a very, very ethereal sound. And again, they're not uh, harmful in any respect other than you know, any animal with teeth. If you harass them or if you get in their way, they're apt to nip you. Or unfortunately, they may have filled the hole through which you need to come out from under the ice. If you have a 36-inch diameter seal in your 43-inch diameter hole, you have a problem. So it can be done, even under the harshest conditions like those of the polar oceans we can monitor sound. It opens up a window on a hidden world. What most people don't realize is that it really is the only possible window. Sound by default is the only method we have left for looking around in the ocean. Uh, light gets uh, attenuated and the other methods uh, just simply don't work. It's the last resort because light energy is attenuated very quickly. Uh, if you go to a region, say, where there's a lot of per suspended particulate, it's, uh, it's light energy is attenuated within a meter or so. So uh, for other than very restricted uses, you really want to go to sound. It can penetrate murk and mire and whatever you want. And uh, so it's really just, uh, it's the best thing for transmitting energy over a distance in the sea. And that's the reason you use sound.
The physics of sound is very interesting indeed. Sound underwater travels about five times faster than in air. The first attempt to measure its speed was carried out in the Lake of Geneva in 1826 by Swiss physicist Daniel Colloden. He calculated its speed to be about 1,435 meters per second, which, although a slight underestimate, was reasonably accurate under the circumstances. In fact, the exact speed of sound varies with the temperature of the water and the pressure, that is, the depth. The, the two major factors that determine the index of refraction or the, the variation of the sound speed with the depth in the ocean in the water itself are the, are the temperature of the water and uh, the pressure, the hydrostatic pressure of the water. Now, the, the temperature dominates uh, near the surface of the ocean. As the uh, water gets cooler, the speed of sound drops. As you might imagine, near the surface of the ocean, because of the irradiation of the water by uh, the rays from the sun, the water is heated up and the sound speed is high. As you go deeper in the water, the temperature decreases and the sound speed drops. Uh, in that region, the effect of the pressure is small. However, when you get to about a thousand meters in the deep ocean, the temperature of the water reaches a constant, and now the hydrostatic pressure in the just because of the sheer mass of the water takes over in its effect on the sound speed, and now the sound speed uh, begins to increase with depth and con and continues to increase all the way down to the ocean bottom itself. So that, so that the picture we have is one whereby the sound speed is high near the surface, it drops down to some minimum value, and then begins to increase. So we see that in the open ocean, there is a balance point at a depth of about a thousand meters, where the speed of sound is at a minimum. This phenomenon produces a most useful and fascinating effect in that a sound once started at this depth tends to be reflected back into this channel and it can propagate over very great distances, even thousands of kilometers. In fact, it has been possible under special circumstances to lower an array of hydrophones off the west coast of the United States and pick up the sound of heavy shipping traffic in Japan. This deep water channel has been given the name the So Far Channel. Perhaps the most interesting and important channeling in the ocean is due to the temperature and the pressure structure of the ocean, which forms a minimum in sound speed down at a depth of perhaps a thousand meters or even a thousand feet, according to whether you're in the tropics or near the Arctic. An attempt was made to utilize it following the Second World War to locate people who were lost in the ocean. The idea was that they could drop a small explosive charge that would go off at this depth. It would, they could select a depth fuse on it. Right. And it could be heard to extremely long ranges. In fact, anywhere in the Pacific Ocean, for instance, that wasn't shadowed by a seamount or a an island chain or something. Listening stations could then have been set around the basin and if three of them heard the shot they could triangulate and find the 
the person. However, it turned out that there were too many shadows to be to be useful. It would have taken a large number of stations to have covered any significant part of the ocean. So the idea was, was given up. But the name so far comes from those so far bombs and, and the system that was going to be created to, to locate lost flyers, for instance. Although the SOFAR channel allows us to listen to and propagate sound over enormous distances, one of man's first uses for it, and probably still his most common use, is simply to measure depth. The principle is very straightforward in that a pulse of sound is beamed downwards from the ship's hull and the interval until the echo returns is timed. Knowing the average speed of sound, the depth is easily calculated. It wasn't long after the introduction of these echo sounders to the fishing fleets that it was discovered that fish also return an echo. However, it took some time before devices specifically adapted for fish finding were commercially available. By producing sound beams underwater that are highly directional, and by aiming these not only downwards, but forward, horizontally and sideways, it is possible to obtain very useful information for navigation and estimating the ranges to underwater objects. Such systems have been given the name sonar systems, standing for sound navigation and ranging. One very interesting type of sonar system is side-scan sonar, which, as the name suggests, utilizes a sideways searching beam which cuts slices through the water, from which a crude picture of the bottom profile may be made up. Using this system, submerged wrecks and prominent rock structures are easily discernible. But man's use of sound underwater extends to cover a tremendous number of both academic and practical applications. From navigation to map-making, prospecting, geophysical exploration, earthquake prediction, communications, remote control, and quite a bewildering array of military applications. Man battle stations, torpedo. Man battle stations, torpedo. Sound a general alarm. The Navy does a significant amount of work in various areas, such as undersea surveillance, which is basically our attempt to recognize the, the potential threats that there are to our naval ships and aircraft on the high seas. We do a significant amount of work in communications. We develop weapon systems. We use communications. We have our ships talking to each other, listening to each other, uh, transferring data back and forth. We use surveillance. W what is it that's out there? Are those ships that we detect out there enemy ships or are they friendly ships? We use our weapon systems. If we determine that they are in fact enemy ships, if we determine in fact that they are a threat, by using all of our sensors, all of our signal processing equipment, our radar, our sonar, our communications that we have, then once that we determine they are an enemy and that they are a threat to us, then we bring our, our weapon systems into play. 
we're able to then counter the threat in, in the most effective manner that we can do that. One of the major uh, ways we're using sound right now is to map uh, uh, ocean basins uh, over millions of square miles. Uh, we simply let off a big bang and then listen for about one to two hours. And from, from that return that comes back from the ocean bottom, we can tell the uh, sizes of the seamounts and if any are close to the surface and do the work that would take a, 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 a many, many ships, uh, many, many years to traverse going back and forth over the same area in the ocean. And from this we can make up maps that uh, tell us a great deal about the ocean bottom. Of course, most of the research that we're doing is basic research just to help us find out more about the ocean environment. However, um, if you uh, have to say we're, we're applying it, uh, it simply tells, uh, gives us a better idea of the underwater seamounts and other features that are present. And that helps everybody, really. It helps us to navigate uh, and it helps us to learn more about the evolution of the ocean bed. Ships are somewhat like people. Our uh, dolphins, they uh, have uh, their own uh, high pitches and low pitches and they, uh, as a function of the, the speed they're going and the, uh, perhaps the weather, they uh, have a continuum of sound that's constantly being emitted with various uh, peaks at selected frequencies that are, occur uh, above this continuum. The machinery, uh, uh, because of the uh, national character of the ship, can sometimes emit very well-defined uh, frequencies, and uh, such as uh, most American vessels emit 60 hertz, and some particular foreign vessels might uh, emit 50 hertz, and, uh, which defines them quite uh, precisely. From strictly a, an interest in acoustics, there are two ways to typically split up things. First, there's passive listening to underwater acoustics, and secondly, there's active propagation of acoustics in the ocean. My work in the past has typically been involved in passive listening um, to how the ocean gurgles and pops all on its own. Typically, you're interested in does the power level of ambient ocean noise, uh, is it constant for long periods of time, or does it fluctuate up and down greatly? Contributors to ambient ocean noise include uh, fish and other uh, mammals in the ocean. Um, they also include ships. Distant shipping traffic is a major contributor in low frequencies of ambient ocean noise. Um, another contributor at high frequencies is storms. So anytime that there's a storm in the ocean, uh, de depending on the frequency you are interested in, uh, you may or may not have a significant impact on what the local ambient noise level is like. And so storms, animals in the ocean, and uh, shipping traffic are all contributors in different frequency regimes. There are many ways that um, information about ambient noise is used. In general, one usage of acoustics underwater is for communication purposes. Uh, and that can either be passive, where you are purposefully listening in the ocean to see if you can hear sounds, and they may be animal sounds, or they may be uh, distant ships or platforms in the ocean that you're listening to. Uh, another reason is that you might be purposefully trying to um, listen for 
a signal which has been propagated to you on purpose carrying uh, communications information. Um, for example, there was a program that I had heard about a couple of years ago where people were interested in high data rate television type communications through the ocean from deep sea submersibles up to the surface where they uh, did not have the capability of having a, a, a tetherable, a, a mechanical linkage, a, a cable between them, and were just interested in propagating a high data rate signal up to the surface. And so there were some, had been some experiments done in that research program for communicating very um, large amounts of data through the ocean. Any point, any time when you're trying to listen to signals passively or communicate actively in the ocean, the question comes up of how much noise is inhibiting your ability to receive that signal. And so people typically are interested in characterizations of ambient ocean noise to be able to understand better how to build receivers to listen for signals that are embedded in that noise uh, background. One of the major applications of uh, ocean acoustics occurs, occurs in the Navy where they're worried about uh, being able to detect enemy submarines. And so this channel provides a mechanism by which uh, sources of sound, for example, submarines which generate noise when they travel underwater, uh, this channel provides a mechanism by which these sound waves can be, uh, can be transmitted over large distances and, and detected. And uh, so it has a very important uh, military application. Of course, being able to try to determine what the actual source of sound was, whether it was a submarine or some other source of sound, perhaps an underwater uh, a, a seismic uh, earthquake occurrence or something of that nature, is a very, is a very complicated problem. Those recordings were made in the United States, where a lot of underwater acoustic research is carried out, and much of it is funded by the U.S. Department of Defense. Elsewhere in Europe, including Ireland, research tends to concentrate more on commercial and academic activities. So around the world, a lot of scientists and engineers are busy studying the underwater properties of sound, and this, of course, is not just simply listening, since man in general is actively contributing to noise in the ocean with his marine machinery. This has some unfortunate side effects, like interfering with whale communications. The lower frequency sound you go to, the better ranges you can also penetrate to, like uh, low frequency sound, maybe about 100 hertz, used by whales can go over 1,000 kilometers. And whales used to communicate large distances in the ocean, and due to ambient noise from shipping and stuff, they don't communicate over such large distances. 100 hertz is a very popular uh, noise frequency right now. There are two distinct types of whale, baleen whales and tooth whales. The baleen whales are all large, the smallest reaching no less than five meters, and the largest, the blue whale, is not only the largest mammal that is alive today, but is in fact the largest mammal that ever lived, reaching a record size of about 30 meters. Interestingly, baleen whales feed mainly on tiny microscopic plankton and small schooling fish which they sieve from the water. Other baleen whales include the finback and humpback. 
The tooth whales, unlike baleen whales, have teeth and are much smaller, the largest being the sperm whale, which reaches a length usually about 15 meters. However, most tooth whales, such as the killer whale, porpoise and dolphin, are very much smaller. All whales are impressively adapted for life in the ocean. Equally impressive to their physical streamline, energy-efficient bodies is their use of sound for communication and echolocation. For these reasons, a great many scientists are studying marine mammals. So what are they doing and what are they finding out? When an animal turns sharply or accelerates or breaks the surface of the sea, a sound is produced and it's characteristic to that movement and to the body that's, that's producing it. And we suspect that these sounds are significant to other animals as well. So that uh, if I'm using an example of, uh, of a finback, finback whale feeding at the surface, when he breaks the surface with his mouth open, the baleen is showing, uh, it makes a sound that I recognize at some distance as a finback feeding at the surface. And if I can recognize it, why other whales probably also recognize it. And in fact, although we hear no vocalizations, often when one finback starts to feed, pretty soon there's another finback and then several others on the scene also feeding. So it probably is those underwater signals that they're picking up and utilizing. Each species has a slightly different sequence of sounds, slightly different patterning in their sounds that's distinctive to that species. Most of the sounds are indeed within our hearing range, but uh, some species have frequencies. And I mentioned the finback. Finback has very low frequencies. Most of their sounds are below our hearing range. Uh, one of the regular sounds that they make is a 23 to 18 hertz sound. Uh, the blue whale uh, makes a sound that, uh, that goes as low as 8 hertz. Uh, these sounds we cannot hear. There is a relationship between frequency and size of the animal in that the larger animals tend to produce lower frequency sounds uh, and conversely the smaller animals tend to produce higher frequency sounds. It's not quite completely true all across the board. Uh, also low frequencies of course travel with less attenuation underwater so that these signals can indeed travel further than, uh, than the higher frequency signals. As some of the smaller animals produce high frequency sounds. So for example, the echolocation pulses of, of some of the smaller species of porpoise uh, don't have much audio energy, but on a hydrophone you can indeed pick up the, the pulses. Nearly, nearly every crustacean makes a, a stridulating sound or, or a snapping sound of various sorts, uh, particularly used apparently in territorial things. We're also interested in any fish sounds. Some fish are silent. Most of the swim bladder fishes have strumming muscles. Uh, others of them have stridulating mechanisms that, uh, that do also produce sound, mostly at, uh, during the mating season during the spawning seasons. Uh, a lot of the sounds, such as the local, we have a local fish called the boatfish, Opsanus tau, uh, that produces a very loud, 
sonorous uh, boat whistle sound that uh, that is quite 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 characteristic and, and quite fun and that's a territorial signal uh, that these fish these these toadfish try not to have more than one in an area and so and so as you move from one area to the next way way a continuous background of toadfish toadfish boat whistle sounds we do not find echolocation in any of the large whales in any of the larger animals including sperm whales we only find it in the odontocetes uh, the smaller odontocetes there are probably a dozen species that it's been demonstrated in quite well and so we assume that all of the smaller s the toothed whales toothed species do indeed use echolocation but we can't find it we cannot find it in sperm whales they do produce pulsed sounds sperm whales do uh, and people as a result have assumed echolocation but behaviorally we haven't been able to 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 show that this is true and in the baleen whales none of those animals produce sounds that are equivalent in short pulsing and they're not used behaviorally in feeding there are no sounds uh, so that it's 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 not a it's it's not an echolocation uh, capability that these animals have well, we try and correlate the sounds, the occurrence of sounds with behavior uh, to try and see what significance the sounds have for the individuals. Generally, they, they, they seem to be, generally they seem to be uh, indicating states of, uh, states of excitement uh, rather than giving specific information. Uh, some of the signals seem to have seem to be carrying individual identity, uh, such as, for example, a, a series of pulses from from sperm whales. The, each individual within an area seems to have a specific pulse pattern uh, that is unique, at least within the acoustical range of the animal, to that animal. A lot of the sounds seem to be displays, acoustic displays. Uh, one that's had worldwide attention is the song of the humpback whale. Uh, that's apparently an acoustic reproductive display, probably produced only by males uh, and only in the breeding season. Uh, other animals others of the large baleen whales also have similar kinds of kinds of sequences mostly not as musical to our ears but of displays nonetheless the sounds are mostly social sounds it is indeed communication and responsive to social things mostly so as a consequence those species that that uh, that come together periodically for social activities that's the time to record an animal by itself generally is silent that is the larger animals the smaller animals that echolocate, they keep their sets running an awful lot of the time, and uh, it doesn't really matter whether it's day or night, except that some of the species, when they can see well, don't bother to echolocate, and so at night time, if they're feeding, why their, their echolocation signals would be heard. Communicatively, why it's, they again are mostly under, under social 
social conditions. At nighttime, the species that do not echolocate uh, seem to congregate together and essentially rest at night, usually near the surface. They stop their, their diving. They, they apparently stop their feeding uh, and uh, usually are found near the surface in, in small groups. The longest divers that we know of are sperm whales, and they, it's, we've uh, demonstrated that, uh, that it's sometimes in excess of one hour. But most of the species, 10 minutes is a, is a relatively long, long period down, sometimes up to 20 minutes. Uh, most, these are the larger whales. This, the smaller the animal, the shorter its submergence time. These were recorded in the Caribbean in November. We were sitting with a group of sperm whales, and we lowered two hydrophones over the side, and one of which was at 70 meters and one was at 6 meters. And we recorded these click sounds, which are really the only type of sounds we've found sperm whales to make. Although in this recording you're hearing, you're hearing both random clicks, which they seem to be making, we don't know why, and patterned clicks, which we call codas, which we think are used perhaps as individual identifiers, each whale making its own pattern of clicks or its own coda. The work that we've been doing has uh, involved looking at the hearing of beluga whales. What we do is play back tones just as you would in an auditory exam at any, uh, at any lab. Uh, the beluga listens to the sound and tells us by pressing a lever whether or not he can hear them. If he, can, if he presses the lever, we know the animal can hear it. We try a higher frequency or a lower level. And if the animal doesn't respond, then we uh, know that, that that's outside his range of hearing. Well, we use what's called operant conditioning techniques, which is, uh, basically involves reinforcing the animal each time he does something closer and closer to what you would like. Uh, it's, a, it's the tr training technique that SeaWorld has used for just about everything. What we do is we train the animal to press a station and then once he's learned how to do that accurately, we, we train him that he's to do this in response to some sort of a signal. And once he's learned to do that, then we teach him what sort of signal it is that, that we're expecting him to hear. And in fact, the current system will be run almost entirely by a small Apple computer so that the animal will actually be initiating the experiments himself whenever he's interested. Uh, animals in a tank find this kind of thing very amusing. And so when they're bored, they'll go up, initiate an experiment. The computer will uh, present signals to him randomly and when he gets bored, he goes off and does something else. This saves a lot uh, in, in, from the point of view of the trainer because the animal is always interested in the study. We do a variety of things in the area of marine mammals. We started back in the early 1960s hoping that we would gain some information on hydrodynamics. If a dolphin can swim through that water that fast, can we learn something that will make our ships and our torpedoes and so on go through the water in a similar fashion? That didn't provide us, that basically was a dead end, but we did learn a lot about mammals and how they worked and realized how significantly intelligent they were. They have an unbelievable sonar system. Uh, a mammal can communicate underwater in an unbelievable sense can pick out, we have determined in our Hawaii laboratory, can pick out a target about the size of a softball, three inches in diameter, at a range of about 100 yards, 
with significant accuracy with all kinds of background noise, snapping shrimp and boat noises and everything else. So it behooves us to, to examine how that dolphin uses his sonar system so that we can learn how our sonar systems for Navy ships can be significantly improved. We have, from that work, we are working on developing what we call a biosonar system that a man, a diver, could wear that would allow him to do the same kinds of things that a dolphin would do, pick out objects underwater at various um, ranges. We have done some work in um, what we call dolphin communication, not the kind of talking that some people have stated that dolphins can talk. We don't believe that to be true, but we have learned that dolphins can communicate bits of information back and forth to each other underwater through sound, through the use of clicks and whistles and so on, that they, the noises that they make by doing various things with their uh, physiology. And all those kinds of things are things that we as a Navy that needs sonar equipment is very interested in doing. We've also done a lot of work with the big whales, uh, humpback whales and blue whales in particular. We have a, a group of people who have done significant research in the past in how sound travels underwater from whales. We've developed a statement a number of years ago that a blue whale can actually make a sound that will travel 100 miles underwater. The, all of these things are interesting to us because they, the noise that's underwater, the noise environment, particularly causes difficulties with our sonar system. And for us to be able to understand better how sound works underwater, which sounds are basically marine mammals and which are fish and which are, in fact, submarines or other ships or whatever, is of vast importance to our sonar people. And that's basically why we care. So our knowledge of underwater sound accumulates and our applications are becoming more sophisticated. But our present technological wonders in no way approach the sophistication of the systems that many marine mammals have used for eons. Whales and, uh, and bats are far ahead of us in terms of uh, their echolocation capabilities and their ability to uh, determine where targets are and to sort out the signals to determine what the targets were. It would appear that the real gains in the future military use of sound will be in the field of signal processing and, and using a, a tremendous amount of computing power to, to process the, and correlate the sound and so on, make more sense of it. Now, probably in our field of propagation, knowing what the sound does and how it scatters, we can create understanding that can help those signal processing processes but but that is where the real gains probably are in the future so we have a whole variety of of people working on the, the principal mission areas we have to focus our attention on how we make those people out there safe how we're able to to best employ our defenses and our offensive weapons as well. Sounds that we've taped, we've tried to divide them up you know, by isolated populations of animals to get more or less pure sounds. However, many areas you find these animals coexisting and people say, well, why do you go to the Antarctic? It's uh, 50, 60 below zero. You know, it's a very, very hazardous environment. Well, once you're down there and you look around and you can see mountains that are 200 miles away, and you have the nicety of 
800 to 1,000 foot visibility in the water, and where you're in uh, an area where all of these animals are coexisting and making noises, it's almost like attending the uh, London Philharmonic. So it's a very, very deep feeling that you get when all of these things are going on around you. Both the mineral wealth and protein food sources of the oceans are in ever-increasing demand with the growth in our population. To properly and wisely exploit these resources, we must study and understand the delicate natural balance of our living oceans. Sound, as we have discovered, is one of our most useful tools and is as yet only at the early stages of development. In striking contrast to the difficulties we've so far experienced in trying to communicate underwater, the marine mammals have achieved what appears to be a perfect communion with a relatively new environment. Research into underwater acoustics falls mainly into two categories, pure academic research and applied science, be it military or civil. But there is a third category, one that's perhaps easiest for the objective layman to appreciate. Jim Stewart, the man who dives under the Antarctic ice, alluded to it when he described being underwater as like listening to the London Philharmonic. Much underwater sound is in fact very beautiful, and nothing illustrates this better than the singing of the humpback whale. Whales and their smaller relations are by no means the only forms of life that contribute to the underwater musical chorus. Fish also sing. The next sequence consists of croakers with snapping shrimp, followed by a singing toadfish. Finally, contribution from those other marine mammals, the seals. First, the fierce Antarctic leopard seal, followed by the songs of the gentler Ross and Waddell seals. The science of underwater acoustics has a great deal to learn from marine creatures, and let's just hope that the knowledge we acquire from them will be used by us and future generations to carefully explore this inner space and wisely utilize its enormous but delicately balanced resources. <laughs>